and simply embrace you as my extended family. I arrived a little early this morning, and yes, with an umbrella, I did a prayer walk around the perimeter of your church. Talk about a workout. Let me tell you, that's a, a long walk to go on. But I did it because I, I wanted to pray for you. And what I did is I prayed a blessing over you as a congregation. And first of all, I prayed that the incredible love of God the Father would fall down on this congregation like an incredibly fresh rain. And that every place where you're in, insecure, every place where you feel fearful, uh, every place where you feel anxious, that you would actually be overwhelmed by the incredible, unlimited, marvelous love of God the Father. And there would be this glorious shalom that would filter into your soul. And then I prayed that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ would like sweep over this congregation like a mighty wave. Friends, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? Is that not like radically great news? <laughs> and so, Bayview Glen family, if you're living in the shadows of shame, I want to declare to you in Jesus' name, you have been forgiven. Come out of the shadows and into the glorious light of Jesus' redemption. And then I like got really excited, Lucas. <laughs> and I prayed, I prayed, oh, Holy Spirit of the living God, would you fall fresh on our Bayview Glen congregation? That the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, it is at work in you. Is that not amazing? So be courageous. Be bold, congregation. And I prayed that every place you put your foot demons would have to flee in Jesus' name because they would see a mighty army. So I stood in the sanctuary and I simply prayed this, come breath. Oh, come from the four winds and enter into those who are slain that they may live. And the breath came and the breath entered in and they stood to their feet a vast army. Sounds better than membership, doesn't it? Ah, I think it sounds like radical ministry partners. I want to invite you, if you have your Bibles, to join me in the Old Testament. 1 Samuel, chapter 13. And the conversation that I want to have with you this morning is simply entitled, The Tale of Two Swords. Now, you'll notice that I move around a lot, and I remember I was preaching in one of our churches, Lucas, and as I was moving around, a woman, halfway through the, the sermon, got up and ran out of the sanctuary. And that's a little disconcerting when you're the preacher, and so after the service was over, I went out, I found her in the foyer, and I said, are you okay? And she said, yeah, but you were moving around so much, I was trying to watch you, I got motion sickness, and I had to go throw up, so Okay. So if any of you get motion sickness, every once in a while I'll stand here. Otherwise, put your head between your legs. You'll be fine. All right. 1 Samuel, chapter 13, beginning at verse 22. So on the day of the battle, not a soldier with Saul and Jonathan had a sword or spear in his hand. Only Saul and his son Jonathan had them. Now a detachment of Philistines had gone out to the pass at Michmash. And one day, Jonathan, son of Saul, said to the young man bearing his armor, Come on, let's go to that Philistine outpost on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Where was Saul, the leader of Israel? Saul was staying on the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree in Migron, and with him were about 600 men. Go to verse 6. 
Jonathan said to his young armor bearer, come on, let's go to the outpost of those uncircumcised fellows. And I love this next statement. Talk about breathing out risk, audacious faith. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Ah, do all that you have in mind, his armor bearer said. Go ahead, I am with you, heart and soul. Jonathan said, come then, we will cross over to the men and we will let them see us. Go over to verse 13. Jonathan climbed up using his hands and his feet and his armor bearer right behind him. And the Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer followed and killed behind him. And in the first attack, Jonathan and his armor bearer killed some 20 men in an area of about half an acre. Then panic struck the whole army. Those in the camp, in the field, and those in the outposts and the raiding parties. The ground shook. It was a panic sent by God. Saul's lookouts at Gibeah and Benjamin saw that the army was melting away in all directions. Go to verse 20. Then Saul realized there was a battle going on. Maybe he should join it. Then Saul and all his men assembled. They went into battle. They found the Philistines in total confusion, striking each other with their swords. And those Hebrews who had previously been with the Philistines and had gone up with them to their camp went over to the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. When all Israelites who had hidden in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were on the run, ah, they joined the battle in hot pursuit. And so the Lord rescued Israel that day, and the battle moved on beyond Beth Avenge. Shall we pray? Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on us today. As, as Melissa was leading us in these incredible songs of the faith today, I just felt this room was alive with the presence and power of the living God. And so, Lord, as we gather here on this rainy Sunday morning, would you allow us to shed all of those things that would be clamoring for our attention and would be riveted on the reality of the risen Christ. And Spirit of the living God, would you breathe on us today? Spare us from just gaining more information Today, Lord, we long for, we hunger for, we thirst for radical transformation in Jesus' name. So, Spirit of the living God, blow fresh on us today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. As I mentioned, I began in ministry over 30 years ago. I'm actually a BC kid, and so God sent us out here to Oshawa, Ontario. And I began my ministry there as a youth pastor, and one of my very first functions was actually going to a junior high boys Bible camp and looking after those critters for about a week. Now, junior high boys are very interesting, are they not? You never quite know what you're going to get. And as I was leading this camp, I must admit to you, it wasn't going very well. The boys were really bored. They were lethargic. They weren't overly interested in spiritual things. And so as we came to the very closing night, I had what I thought was a brilliant idea. It was going to be the closing campfire. And so I decided I was going to tell the story of Elijah calling down fire from heaven. But before the boys arrived, we put all the logs in the fire pit and we doused them with gasoline. And then we attached a wire to one of those logs and it went up into a tree where we hid one of our youth workers. And on that wire was a toilet paper roll also doused in gasoline. This is how it was going to go. This is called dramatic preaching, Lucas. It's amazing. I was going to tell the incredible story of Elijah calling down fire from heaven. 
And when we came to that climactic moment, the boys would look up in the sky. They'd see a spark. No, they'd see a flame. The flame would come down, hit the fire pit. There would be a mammoth explosion, and junior high boys would give their hearts to Jesus. I thought this was amazing. By the way, do not try this at home. Everything was arranged. The boys arrived. Anticipation. Flashlights in front of their faces. And as I began to tell this dramatic story, I got a little long-winded that all of the gas in the fire pit actually evaporated. And so when we came to that climactic moment, the boys looked up in the sky. They saw a spark. No, they saw a flame. The flame came down, hit the fire pit, and immediately went out. And one of the junior high boys in the back of the group yelled out in a loud voice, Great story, but where's the fire? I've never forgotten that. Because to be honest with you, as I travel around and visit Alliance churches throughout Canada, I sometimes actually find myself asking the same question. Great facility, but where's the fire? Oh, amazing worship, but where's the fire? Great sermon, Pastor, but where is the fire? The palpable presence of the living Christ that transforms fear-filled disciples into faith-filled missionaries for the kingdom of God. I am a man on a mission, friends, unapologetically so, crying out to God for fresh fire to come upon the Christian Missionary Alliance in Canada. I am convinced this is our time. That the untamed faith of God might be unleashed within us. That we would actually be consumed by the presence of a passionate and compassionate God and that we would be willing to go where he sends us no matter the cost. The alliance began as such a fear-filled, faith-filled, fire-filled movement. A.B. Simpson, a good Canadian boy, was actually born in Prince Edward Island. He was raised in Chatham, Ontario and began into ministry in his early teens and was actually pastoring the second largest Presbyterian church here in Hamilton, Ontario. God called him to leave that church and to go to Louisville, Kentucky. It was at the end of the Civil War. Louisville was divided north and south. There was hostility in the community. There was devastation in the church. There was, there was massive problems within the homes. And into that context, this young Canadian boy goes with a vision for revival and renewal to come. He got together with the other clergy in Louisville, Kentucky, and they began to pray for the fire of God to fall. Historians tell us that the fire of God came upon Louisville, Kentucky like a white, hot heat. Prayer meetings went on into the wee hours of the morning. Hundreds came to know Christ as Lord and Savior. But for A.B. Simpson, something happened in his heart and soul. He was a good Presbyterian theologian, but he'd never encountered the fullness of the Holy Spirit. It was there in Louisville, Kentucky, that he came to realize this primary truth. That when you are filled with the Holy Spirit of God, you no longer want to live for yourself. That you actually want to give your life away in service and sacrifice, the same way that Jesus gave his life away. And so there in Louisville, Kentucky, in that humble moment, he simply said, Spirit of the living God, fill me. He declared, oh, I thought I was filled with the Holy Spirit. But he said, I was never filled to overwhelming. I was never filled to overflowing. I was never immersed in the Holy Spirit. He said, it's like I had a little bit of the ocean in the bottle, but God wanted to put the bottle into the ocean. And I wonder if today, in the Christmas Day Alliance, as I stand before you as my Bayview Glen congregation to declare, have you been filled with the Holy Spirit? Have you been filled to overwhelming? 
because there is a direct link between the filling of the Holy Spirit and a vision to reach the nations of the world with the good news of Jesus Christ. And Simpson was set aflame in that moment. He left Louisville, Kentucky, and he went to New York City. He felt from there he could establish a a ministry that would reach to the nations of the world. And he started pastoring 13th Presbyterian, 13th Avenue Presbyterian Church. Let me just say this. They weren't quite ready for A.B. Simpson, and he wasn't quite ready for them. He wrote in his diary, they wanted a nice pastor who'd preach wonderful sermons and keep them very comfortable. He said he wanted to fill his church with publicans and sinners, people who needed to know Jesus. And so on his days off, he'd actually go down to the docks and he'd preach to the Italian immigrants that were coming in to New York City. And they were gloriously getting saved. And then he tried to bring them into 13th Street Presbyterian Church. And let me just say this, their vision for the world was not quite as large as his. And after only a year of ministry, he resigned. He put an ad in the New York paper that simply said this, if you've got a vision to reach the world for Jesus, come and meet with me. Seven people showed up in a dusty, dingy dance hall in the middle of New York City. And there as they huddled, it was November, as they huddled around a wood stove, Simpson said they thrust themselves on the power of the Holy Spirit. And he opened the word of God, and this is what he declared. It is not by might, it is not by power, but it is by my spirit, thus says the Lord. And friends, the fire of God fell upon them. They planted a church in New York City, but they also began a worldwide movement. And within 10 short years, over 600 young men and women were sent to the uttermost parts of the world, places like the Congo, places like Tibet, and many of them never returned to the shores of North America. They were convinced that Christ is our Savior, Healer, Sanctifier, and Hallelujah Coming King. They were willing to give their lives for the cause because they were filled with the fire and the passion of God. And so my question for us this morning is, is that still us? I mean, if A.B. Simpson was pastoring an average alliance church in Canada, would he actually leave it to start a new movement for God? Or would he still see fire in us? Would he still see that passion, that DNA in us, that is willing to do whatever it takes to reach the nations of the world? I am convinced that the fire is still in the Christian Missionary Alliance. Amen? I think it's in this room. So I want to invite you to move a little closer. And I want to engage you in a conversation. Because my great fear is that the longer we are a movement, the more we can gravitate to what I call simply a really good ministry. And where all of the energy used to reach the nations of the world is now simply used to, to maintain all of the structures and all of the administrative functions we've, we've established. And, and my great fear is that we can very quickly become an ecclesiastical Costco. Goods and services for members only. And we actually burn our leaders out, stocking the shelves with our personal preferences. Friends, let me declare this to you in Jesus' name. The church actually exists for non-members. Amen? We are called to be on mission. And if we stay in ministry mode too long, we will gravitate to what I call museum mode. Where all of the great conversations around the fire of God are still in our midst. They're just all 30 years old. And if we stay in museum mode too long, we will gravitate to what I call monument mode. Friends, I'm going to be blunt with you. 
All over North America, there are churches that are simply monuments to that which was once a great movement of God. They are anemic. They are dead. There's no passion. There's no life. There's no fire in them. And I want to declare to you in Jesus' name, the Christian and Missionary Alliance in Canada will not become a monument on our watch. What if today God was calling us into a fresh movement? What if today God was motivating our hearts with fresh passion and fresh fire for a new opportunity? On the day of the battle, there were only two swords in all of Israel. And whenever you read narrative literature, you always pay attention to the details. And so I asked the question, what happened to these two swords? Well, one belonged to Saul, the great leader of Israel. And where do we find Saul? On the outskirts of Gibeah in Migron, under a pomegranate tree. You can almost see him holding on to his one sword going, we've only got one sword. Discouraged, disillusioned, dejected. Sometimes I think we look at our resources as churches and go with the massive scope of, of reaching Canadian culture with the good news of Jesus Christ, and we look at our resources and we go, oh man, we've only got one sword. And very quickly we can migrate to, to under the pomegranate tree, fear and, and, and disillusionment and, and, and absolute defeat. I want to declare to you, however, there was another sword in all of Israel and belonged to Jonathan. Can you hear his heart pounding in his chest? As Jonathan raises this sword and declares, we still have a sword. And we serve the almighty, sovereign God of the universe that we were singing about a few moments ago. And I want to declare to you, Bayview Glen Alliance Church, in Jesus' name, you still have a sword. And the power of God is at work in this place. And the fire of God is motivating and permeating your souls for a fresh opportunity in mission. In every great movement of God, three things need to happen. First of all, in every great movement of God, somebody needs to be willing to go first. Three times in this text, Jonathan uses this wonderful phrase uh, to, his, to his young armor bearer, come on, let's go. Isn't that a great phrase? In fact, if I ever become an Alliance Church pastor again, I'm going to rename the Alliance Church the Come On, Let's Go Alliance Church. Wouldn't it be a great name? That we're sending a signal to our community that we're not standing still, that we're not migrating under the pomegranate tree, that we are alive and vibrant and on mission with God. My call to you as my extended family is that God would motivate you to be a go-first congregation, a willingness to step out of your comfort zone and to try new things for the kingdom of God. There is a revival that is actually taking place in Cuba as I speak. 20 of our alliance pastors, we, we are such a small denomination in, in Cuba that we aren't even recognized by the Cuban government. But 20 of our Cuban leaders got together and they had a vision. A vision to start a prayer movement. To have somebody praying every hour of every day, 365 days for revival to come to Cuba. It began to spread from those 20 to other denominational leaders. And Agnes and I were actually there for the first annual prayer conference sanctioned by a communist government. Can you believe it? 450 pastors showed up representing 50 different denominations. And friends, you always know that God is bringing revival when the first order of business is repentance. And immediately, as the fire of God fell upon these leaders, they began to spontaneously repent, to apologize to one another for ways in which they had not served together. And they spontaneously started to wash one another's feet. 
The Baptists were washing the Pentecostals' feet. The Pentecostals were washing the Baptists' feet. The Alliance was washing everybody's feet. It was glorious. And in that holy moment, the incredible presence of Jesus descended on these Cuban leaders, and they stood to their feet, and they began to chant over and over again, Christ for Cuba, Cuba for the nations. Can you imagine? Christ for Cuba, Cuba for the nations. This year, the Cubans are sending out their first missionaries. And do you know where they're going? To the Arab nations of the world. The hardest to reach people groups of the world. And so I say to you, my friends, if God can start revival with 20 go-first Cuban leaders who are willing to pray the fire of God down on an entire island nation so that there is transformation happening there as I speak, that they're sending out their first missionaries to the Arab nations of the world, then God can bring revival to Canada. Amen? What if he wants to start here, Lucas? What if in the heart of this congregation, a leading congregation in the GTA, what if God wants to rain down fresh fire on your lives? i got to tell you one of the great challenges is, if you're going to be a go-first church, is that we need to realize is that in terms of people coming to our churches, in the Canadian culture, that is shrinking. They say only about 15% of people will, will ever actually attend a local church if we invite them. So I say to my pastors, have great local churches like you do. Dynamic worship, great preaching. But baby Glenn, if that is all you do, you're only going to reach a small fraction of the population. Here's where it gets really exciting. If you're going to reach the other 85%, then every one of you in this room needs to see yourselves as a missionary on mission with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Friends, it is time we get out of our churches and into our communities in Jesus' name. Amen? Here's the good news. You're actually already there. <laughs> the place where you live, the place where you go to work, the place where you go to school, that is your mission field. And if the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is at work in you, then I say to you as my extended family, let them out. I am not all at all about attractional church, but I think believers filled with the spirit of Jesus ought to be very attractive. Amen? There ought to be this flavor and the fragrance about our lives. So whenever I go to Alliance Church, I, I always do a prayer walk around the outside of the church. Now, I never do more than seven laps. I don't want the walls to fall down. It's kind of a freaky thing I do. So I was at one of our churches, and I'd done about five laps around the church, and I thought, you know what? I better stop. I better go somewhere else. So I walked across the street, and, and uh, there was a mall across the street, an outdoor mall, and uh, it was Sunday morning, and I was dressed in a suit, and everybody was, 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 you know, most of the outlets were closed, except one was open, the running room. And there was about 30 people gathered there for a Sunday morning run. And as I walked by this group, I listened to the running coach. He's very charismatic, very motivational. He says, you know, the first couple of kilometers is going to be tough, but, but then your, your natural endorphins are going to kick in. It's going to feel like an amazing high. I thought I could use an amazing high. And in a moment, I was captured. And as they started to run, I started to run with them. They had a fast group and a slow group. I know this is incredibly insane, but this is me. I'm running with the slow group. In a full suit, they thought I was crazy. And we run right by the Alliance Church. I'm going to preach at that morning. And as we run by the Alliance Church, God stops me and says, David, don't you realize lost people are running by our churches every day? And I said, oh, God, I know that. How do we get them to run into our churches? And God said, you don't. You teach your people to run where lost people are running. 
And so I said, if I ever become a local church pastor again, I'm going to force everyone to wear running shoes on Sunday morning. Wouldn't it be a great idea to remind you that the church gathered is not the main event. Yes, we gather together to worship, to hear the proclamation of God's word, to spur one another on to love and good deeds so that we can be the church scattered in Jesus' name. I say, people say, what is your great wish when people show up to church? My great wish is that they'll want to leave. Not because they don't like the church, but because they are so motivated, so set on fire, so passionate to reach their community. They want to launch out of the church and into the community in Jesus' name. But let me share this with you. If you do, it's going to require great risk. And notice as Jonathan says to his armor bearer, perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. What an audacious statement. Now, I don't know about you, but if there's only two of us, and we've got one sword, and we are going to attack a large group of well-armed Philistines, I'm thinking sneak attack is a good idea, aren't you? And yet, what do we read in the text? Here's Jonathan's approach. Let us stand out in front of them and let them see us. Is that not bizarre to you? Is that not like, here we are, two of us, one sword, we're coming for you? That's crazy. It's crazy unless you believe this fundamental truth. That unless God shows up, you are doomed. And friends, I think we need that kind of desperation in the church, amen? That, that your dream as a church ought to be so audacious, so on the edge, that unless God shows up, you're doomed. And here's the beauty, is that when God shows up, you can't take an ounce of the glory. It's all about him. We moved into our new neighborhood. We were very anxious to meet our new neighbors. And, and very quickly, uh, we were in this cul-de-sac, and Joanne and Roger came over and introduced themselves. And, and we got into a conversation, and about five minutes in, Joanne says, well, Dave, what do you do for a living? And I said, well, I look after a family of churches. And she stopped me immediately and said, are you guys Christians? And I remember Agnes and I had big smiles on her face as well. Yes, we are. She said, we know lots of Christians, and we don't like any of them. It's really that blunt. Like, can you imagine? And she said, so we'll be really good neighbors, but don't you dare talk to us about God. And so we built an amazing friendship, had their kids over to her home, and, and, and about a year after that, Joanne came over to her house, and she looked very worried. And she said to me, um, Roger's been diagnosed as bladder cancer, with bladder cancer. She said, it doesn't look good at all. And she said, you're our friends, and we wanted you to know. And so after Joanne left our home, I, I turned to Agnes and I said, how do we help these people? And immediately God said to me, go over and offer to pray for them. And you know what I said to God? Oh, no. We discussed that a year ago. They don't want to talk about you. Can you imagine I said that? You know what that's called? Fear. Fear. <laughs> you know what I think evangelism is? It's a courageous walk across your cul-de-sac. That's what evangelism is. So I fought with God for three days on that one. And finally I came in and I said, okay, Lord, I'll go. I walked across her cul-de-sac. I knocked on the door. Joanne came down. I said, Joanne, we love you as a family. And I know Roger is going in for surgery tomorrow. I wonder, could I come in and pray for him? And this is an actual quote. She looked at me and said, not a chance. That would freak him right out. But her next words were beautiful. She said, but could you talk to God for us? Because we don't know how to do that. We gathered our family together, and I prayed for a miracle. 
The next day I came home from the office and Joanne came running out of her home, which was very uncharacteristic. I couldn't even get out of the car. I, 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 I turned the window down and, and she leaned in and I said, Joanne, what's up? She said, we took Roger in for his surgery this morning and they were doing a pre-op examination. They couldn't find the tumor. They had two other specialists come in. They couldn't find the tumor. They've declared that Roger is absolutely cancer-free. And then with a huge smile on her face, she says, and I wanted you to be the first to know because you prayed. And then she said, you Christians call it, it starts with an M. I said, miracle. She said, that's the one. Now, Roger and Joanne don't know Jesus yet, but we could sure talk about God now. So, baby gun family, what's a courageous walk you need to take? What is that risk point in your soul where you say, perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. I dare you. Take the walk. Take the walk. Which leads me to the last thing I want to say. In every great movement of God, somebody has to go first. In every great movement of God, there's always going to be risk. But in every great movement of God, we get to leave a legacy for the next generation that pumps them with fire and passion to lead further and stronger than we ever led before. In this text, there's this beautiful interplay between Jonathan and the young armor bearer. And I think this is the generational handoff. And as Jonathan shares this audacious vision, you know, we could die today kind of vision. Notice in verse 7 the response of this incredible young armor bearer. He doesn't say, well, I signed up for this job. I knew it might cost me my life one day. I guess today's the day. I don't hear that in the text. See, see this is not a duty-driven moment. This is a passion-driven moment. What do we hear in this, in this young armor bearer? We hear the words, I am with you, heart and soul. In the original text, it actually means, I will die with you today because I believe in the cause. And one of the great challenges we're facing in Canada, in every evangelical church, is a mass exodus of the 20-somethings. They're leaving our churches, and they're not leaving because they're mad. They're just bored. And they say things like this to me. We haven't given up on Jesus. We just don't get our local church anymore. <laughs> and I say, how about if we give them the local church with Jesus back in it? Amen? Our lives, vibrant, filled with the power of the Spirit, willing to do whatever it takes to reach the nations of the world. Listen, I have three daughters, and I love my daughters. But they don't care what titles their dad has. They don't even know what I do. I don't even really know what I do. Who's a president of a denomination? What's that about? All I wanted to is speak into the heart and soul of our congregations and say it is time, friends, it is time in Jesus' name for fresh fire. And our 20-somethings, our kids and our grandkids are longing to see it in us. They're desperate to see it in us. And they want to know, Dad, do you care about our friends who are making really bad choices? Do you care about the pain you see in the world. My mom is 87 years old, and she's the most missional person I know. My mom lives in a crown-level condo in Abbotsford, and uh, my mom talks every day to Phyllis. Now, Phyllis is deaf, and my mom is deaf. Can you imagine that conversation? They're yelling at each other over the phone all the time. So, um, 
One day, mom is yelling at Phyllis. Phyllis is yelling at my mom. And a young man, high on drugs, breaks into her ground-level apartment, goes by the room where she's yelling at Phyllis, goes into her bedroom, steals all of her money, all of her jewelry, and her car keys, goes down into the underground parking of her condo, finds her car, drives it through the underground parking, the big gate down there. There's a huge crash. Everybody in the condo hears it except my mother. The police are called. Within 30 minutes, they catch the thief. And so Constable Frank shows up at my mom's door, and my mom greets him and says, why are you here? And he says, it's okay, Mrs. Hearn, you've just been robbed. And my mother goes, really? <laughs> he says, okay, we've got the thief. we got your car back. Here's your jewelry, and here's your $35. And my mom said, but I only had $25. <laughs> and Constable Frank said, you keep it, dear, you keep it. Fast forward three months. My mom phones me and says, I want to go to the sentencing hearing. This young man was going to plead guilty. I said, Mom, why do you want to go? She says, I want to go and be able to look that young man in the eye and tell him I forgive him and that I'm praying for him. I said, okay, Mom, we'll go. And so we showed up in the courtroom. There was my middle daughter, Alicia, my mom, and myself. And on the other side was just the, the mother of the young man. And as we're waiting there for the judge to come in, in comes the lawyer of the young man, and I immediately recognize him. His name's Daryl Schultz. He's a part-time pastor, part-time lawyer. How that works out in the economy of God, I'm really not sure. But he's great at both. <laughs> he comes up to me, and he says, Dave, what are you doing here? And I said, it looks like your client robbed my mother. He goes, oh, great. Why is your mom here? And I said, my mom's here because she wants this young man to know that she forgives him, and she's praying for him. Judge comes in, all rise, and the young man comes in behind a glass enclosure with a sheriff, and immediately Daryl Schultz goes up to the podium and says, Your Honor, I'd like to ask for a, a special privilege. It was granted, and he said, I'd like to introduce you to Mrs. Hearn. She's the victim. He said, I have been a lawyer for years, and usually when the victim shows up in the courtroom, it's because they have one thing on their mind, to make sure the perpetrator gets the full extent of the law. He said, Mrs. Hearn is here for a different reason. She wants my client to know that she forgives him, and she's praying for him. The courtroom went silent. Afterwards, that provincial court judge went to Daryl Schultz. As an actual quote, he said, I hate people of faith. They make my job so difficult. Isn't that a great quote? He turns to the young man and says, stand to your feet. It's a powerful moment in the courtroom. He said, today in this courtroom, you have been offered a moment of mercy. I'm only going to sentence you to half the amount of time that I originally was because of Mrs. Hearn. Now, what do you need to say to her? This 21-year-old kid looks out from behind this glass enclosure at my mother and goes, I'm really sorry. And my mom, who's not very charismatic, stands to her feet and goes, it's all right, you're forgiven. It was just amazing. Sentence is handed down, court dismissed. My mother walks over and embraces this young man's mother and says, I'm praying for your boy. And the mother says, oh, he needs prayer, doesn't he? I turn to my middle daughter, Alicia, I said, honey, you're never going to read this in a textbook. But your mom is more concerned about this lost young man who robbed her than about all she possesses, and even her very life. And Alicia didn't use the words, but I saw it in her eyes. I'm with her dad, heart and soul. Is that not what you want for your kids? Is that not what you want for your grandkids? That they would see such fire, such passion, such hope, such vision in the hearts and lives of moms and dads and grandpas and grandmas, that our kids would rise up and say, we're with you, heart and soul. That's us. That's the Christian Missionary Alliance. So I want to invite you to stand. Just stand to your feet for a moment. I, I want to actually bring you a gift. And in a moment, Lucas is going to come and he's going to lead us in communion. 
But I want to bring you a gift today, all the way from Cuba. When Agnes and I were leaving Cuba, 24 Cuban leaders gathered around us. And one of them cupped his hands like this, and he said, within my hands I hold the flame of revival. And then he walked over me, so, so, so tenderly, so incredibly beautiful, and he asked me to cup my hands like this, and he dropped that flame into my hands. And this is an actual quote. He said, could you take that back to Canada? They really need it there. It's one of our Cuban leaders. Can you imagine? And he took the flame. He said, oh, Jesus. It's got to begin with me. I'm 56. I don't want to put in time. I don't want to put in time. I want to be alive. So I took the flame and I pulled it into my chest. I said, oh, Jesus, just come. Come. So... You just need to know you're loved. And I won't hug all of you, and I won't chase you to get a hug, and I will shake your hand. It'll feel awkward, but we'll do it. But I'm not going to leave you standing still. Time is short. It's crucial. And so I'm going to dare you today, as I conclude, I'm going to dare you just to cup your hands like this. And I'm going to dare you, as I give you a flame that comes all the way from Cuba, to pull it into your chest. And as you pull it into your chest... This got really exciting all of a sudden. As you pull it into your chest, you're saying, oh God, whatever you want me to do, wherever you want me to go, whenever you want me to do it, my answer to you today in advance is yes. Isn't that radical? 